World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm your host, John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In recent years, China has expanded its espionage operations. Its hacking capacity is legendary, and it seems to have got better at the fleshy side of things, too. But some wonder whether China's intelligence services really are as good as advertised. And it might look like a pretty easy gig being a lifeguard. But after a pandemic of closed pools, it's proving difficult in America to get enough trained lifeguards in all those tall chairs. In many places, swim at your own considerable risk. First up, though. Inflation is crushing living standards all over the world, and that is stoking fury and political turmoil. From Sri Lanka to Peru to Pakistan, protests spread as the prices of fuel and food rise and rise. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is one cause, of course, the after-effects of navigating a global pandemic, another. But a hungry man is an angry man, as the saying goes, and all those angry men and women are pointing fingers at causes closer to home, in places where increasing unrest and violence in the coming months seem all but inevitable. I've recently been to Tunisia and Turkey investigating the global problem of rising fuel and food prices, how they're affecting people's living standards and making them very upset and likely to protest. Robert Guest is The Economist's foreign editor. So in a cafe in Tunisia, I met a guy called Maher, who's a young man working hard. Inflation keeps reducing his income. And it's looking further and further away that he's ever going to be able to afford to, to buy a house, get married, and as he sees it, become a grown-up, a respected member of society. And he says from the moment he wakes up in the morning to the last moment before he falls asleep at night, he says he's angry. In Turkey, there's lots of people with the same complaint that the prices of everything just keep going up. I met a housewife there who complained that her husband's pension has just been eaten away by inflation, so much so that they haven't managed to eat any meat this year and he's going to have to go back to work. 
I also met a man called Chilan Dohan, who works at a market stall in Istanbul. He says he has to work day and night, and it's still nowhere near enough to afford a proper place to live, a place where he could settle down and get married. He said the only solution to rising prices is to change the government. And what do you make of that suggestion, that that's the only solution here? Well, in the case of Turkey, clearly they do need a change of government policy if they're going to tackle inflation, because they have a president who, who believes, unlike any economist, that lowering interest rates is the way to tackle inflation. Turkey's President Erdogan has made it very clear that he has no plans to raise interest rates. That's why they have the worst inflation anywhere in the world apart from Zimbabwe and Venezuela. So in Turkey, it is partly a problem of government policies. In lots of other countries, the blame for rising food and fuel prices has to rest very largely on Vladimir Putin, who, by invading Ukraine, has interrupted global supplies of grain and fuel. The thing is, when people see prices going up, they tend to blame their own governments because that's the one they feel that they can affect, either by voting it out or by rioting and trying to drive it out. And and that same sentiment then you saw on your travels in Tunisia as well? Absolutely. So the situation in Tunisia is very bad because people depend enormously on imported food and fuel And when the prices go up, that goes straight to people's living standards. And this is happening at the time when you've got a population where half of them are under 30 and a third of young men are unemployed uh, and a lot of the rest are underemployed. I spoke with some of them in one of the slums on the edge of Tunis, the capital, and the mood there was really volatile. The man calling himself Ali Tupac told me, fuck the government, fuck the police, fuck Kai Saeed, the president. And he then showed me the weapon he carries, the knife that he carries strapped under his trouser leg in case the trouble happens. His friend Mohammed said that young people like him had nothing to lose and that they'll join a riot just for a chance to steal phones and rob shops to make some money. And so when you see situations like this, then it's fair to say that that something is going to set this off into wider unrest and not just grousing in the markets? Well, you can never be sure what's going to happen, but it certainly raises the likelihood. Generally speaking, past unrest is the best predictor of future unrest. A country that's already had a riot is much more likely to have one in the future. And that's certainly been the case in Tunisia and in many of the other countries that we've looked at. So the economist built a statistical model to assess the relationship between food and fuel price inflation and unrest. And we used data showing mass protests, political violence and riots going all the way back to 1997. And we found that these two numbers were extremely good predictors of unrest. And we then cast it forward a year and said, if past pattern holds, what's today's food and fuel price inflation likely to do to social unrest? And we found that you can expect in a lot of countries the doubling of unrest over the next year. 
And this is clearly beyond just uh, Turkey and Tunisia. Yes. We produced a map showing where the risks are highest. So we've already seen how far this can go in Sri Lanka, where massive riots over the cost of living have forced the government to sack the prime minister and have also killed quite a lot of people. And that place is really on the edge now. Places that are on the verge of default, like Laos, places like Peru, which depended enormously on imports of fertilizer from Russia and Ukraine. They've had riots there already. And then there's places where it hasn't happened yet, but where you've got to be worried about it. In Pakistan, the food and fuel prices have helped to turn a debt problem into a crisis. Places like Kyrgyzstan, which relies on wheat and remittances from Russia and has had recent political unrest. There's a big food crisis in Kenya at the moment, and they're holding an election this summer. And one hopes that there won't be political violence in that election, but moods are much tetchier because belts are tighter. And so what are governments doing? What should they be doing? What could they do to stop that cycle? So the first thing that governments should be doing is to be aware that there's a problem and that they have to listen to people. A lot of them would like to cushion the blow to living standards, but that's gotten much harder because during the pandemic, a lot of poor and middle-income countries went really a long way into debt, and they're going to need help. It would be very helpful if the international financial institutions, like the IMF, were generous. And what we would argue is that they should be generous, but firm in their conditions, and monitor the way the money is spent very carefully. Ultimately, it's only governments that can try to do the necessary reforms to make people less unhappy. The difficulty is that most of the kinds of structural reforms that they should be doing take quite some time to pay off, and people are hungry now, and they're angry now. So given all of that, the economist's model suggests that some amount of unrest is definitively coming. It seems extremely likely, and certainly that's the prediction that people are making on the streets, which is why so many of the young men I met in the slums in Tunis, for example, are, are going around tooled up. Yeah, what's the golf club for? He tells me, you never know. <laughs> Robert, thanks very much for joining us. Jason, thank you. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. China has built the world's most expansive surveillance state using facial recognition cameras, internet monitoring, biometric collection, and other tools to keep tabs on its citizens. It's highly proficient in cyber espionage carried out on other countries, too. But when it comes to more conventional international snooping, Chinese spies may be somewhat less proficient. Western officials have been warning for some years now that Chinese spies are getting a lot bolder and better. 
Jeremy Page is our Asia diplomatic editor. They've been accused of all sorts of nefarious activities. The UK and European Union have accused China of carrying out a major cyber attack earlier this year. The attack targeted Microsoft Exchange servers and affected over a quarter of a million servers all around the world. Uh, stealing Western defense and commercial secrets, harassing Chinese dissidents overseas, and even bugging the headquarters of the African Union. The French newspaper Le Monde quoted anonymous sources at the African Union headquarters as claiming the following, that the Chinese had planted listening devices in desks and in the walls of the building. The devices... China's denied all of that. But it's also become apparent the Chinese have some quite significant shortcomings when it comes to espionage. In short, they may not be quite as good as advertised. Jeremy, can you expand on that? What do you mean? What's an example of a shortcoming? Well, if you take, for instance, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia's President Vladimir Putin met with uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, on February the 4th. We don't know exactly what was said in that meeting, obviously, but it does seem clear that China wasn't prepared for the invasion that came three weeks later and how it played out. China didn't seem to have made any contingency plans to evacuate its citizens. Its embassy advised them to make it obvious to others that they were Chinese, suggested they should put a Chinese flag in a prominent position on their cars. And then it later retracted that advice and told them they shouldn't display any identifying symbols. Then at the United Nations in New York, Chinese officials were really struggling to form a coherent position. And Chinese officials there and elsewhere also spent a lot of time asking foreign counterparts for information about what was going on on the ground. And before the war, uh, one foreign diplomat we've spoken to said he remembered uh, having a conversation with Chinese contacts who confessed that they had limited understanding of Central and Eastern Europe, but were fortunate to have the Russians to explain it for them. So if this is the case, why have Western officials been sounding warnings about Chinese espionage? Well, China has expanded its activities and its capabilities quite dramatically in recent years, according to current and former intelligence officials we've spoken to. But uh, a lot of that activity is focused on acquiring commercial and defense technology that's in industries such as robotics, aerospace and biopharma, the sort of technologies of the future. Chris Ray, the director of the FBI, warned about the scale of Chinese spying activity in a speech earlier this year at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. The Chinese government steals staggering volumes of information and causes deep, job-destroying damage across a wide range of industries. So much so that, as you heard, we're constantly opening new cases to counter their intelligence operations, about every 12 hours or so. And China's cyber espionage activities have been especially brazen, according to a lot of Western officials. Uh, Chris Ray actually said that they outstrip those of all other countries combined. So given all the money and resources that China has available, what do you think explains its relative weakness in big picture foreign intelligence? So there are a few things going on here. I think one is, according to the intelligence officials and experts I've spoken to, China's interests around the world have expanded so rapidly over the last three decades that its intelligence agencies sometimes have problems identifying clear priorities. The other weakness in Chinese spy agencies is on intelligence analysis, which is 
sort of hobbled by a, a political culture in which there really are very few incentives for taking initiative or challenging orthodoxy. If you're a, a junior or mid-ranking official in a Chinese intelligence agency, you don't really have the status, the political cover to make risky calls when you're analyzing raw intelligence. The people who do make those calls tend to be at a much more senior level, vice minister and above. And even they may not uh, want to pass on assessments that might conflict with even more senior leaders, especially uh, Xi Jinping. And a final thought is that spying in Russia presents China with some particular challenges. China probably has less insight into decision-making there than Western countries do, just because they have far more experience of spying on the Russians from the Cold War. And though China had its differences with Russia during the Cold War, it didn't really have the resources to do spying on the same level. So, Jeremy, should Western intelligence agencies take some comfort from this picture you've just painted? Well, in some ways, yes, because it shows China's not 10 feet tall. But it's also troubling in another way, because it does suggest that President Xi Jinping is making some extremely important decisions based on faulty intelligence. But if you imagine, for example, that Xi Jinping does decide to take military action over Taiwan, one of the jobs that his spies are going to have to do is to try to work out how the US and its allies are going to respond. At what point would the Americans intervene? In a fast-moving crisis like that, it's not clear that uh, Chinese spies are going to be able to make those judgments, even though they have better insight into what goes on in the US than they do in Russia. They throw more resources at it. Even if they do guess it right, that still leaves open the question of whether they would dare to communicate to Xi Jinping something that they feel would conflict with his own views. All right, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania is turning to Instagram to recruit lifeguards. To help, they're enlisting the oldest of their number, 70-year-old Thelma Nesbitt. Hey, my name is Thelma. I'm a water safety instructor with Parks and Rec. If you want to become a lifeguard with us, this is the things you have to do. Swim 12 laps nonstop freestyle and breaststroke. It might seem an unusual step to hire life-saving staff, but towns and cities across America are getting desperate. A national shortage of lifeguards poses a real danger for people heading into the water this summer. Being a lifeguard is a lot more than just sitting on a chair by a pool or by the beach. It's actually quite a highly skilled job. Rosemary Ward is The Economist's New York correspondent. It requires a very tight screening process. Intense training is required to perform water rescues and first aid. And that highly skilled aspect is part of the reason that pools and beaches in cities, towns, summer camps and private resorts are having a really hard time finding enough lifeguards this summer. So the shortage is is largely about training? It's part of the reason. The main cause is the pandemic. When pools closed two summers ago, the pool of lifeguards dried up. 
It was just that people stopped being in the habit of being lifeguards. Certifications expired because pools closed. They just weren't hearing about lifeguard openings. And a poll in May by the National Recreation and Parks Association found that just 12% of parks and recreation leaders say they're fully staffed for the summer. That national shortage means that many pools are closed or have cut hours and some beaches may be unmanned. So this is a fully national problem then? Yeah, absolutely. Austin, Texas has 462 lifeguards, less than two thirds of the 750 needed to operate its summer pools. And it's only opened 15 of its 32 available pools. In New Orleans, some pools will open just one or two days a week instead of the usual five or six. New York City has enough to man its pools and its beaches, but it's had to cancel its aquatic programs, including free swimming lessons for children. And Philadelphia, which has more pools per capita among big American cities, is opening 50 of its 63 pools and on a rolling basis. So they're not even all opened at the same time. So I guess what's in order here is some sort of major recruitment drive. Yeah. Well, as as you know, there's a major labor shortage in America, and this is another position that's difficult to fill. Austin's offering signing bonuses of up to $750. New Orleans has increased its hourly wage from $11 to $19. But even private resorts are struggling. The general manager of Catalina Beach Club on Long Island told me he's worried he'll lose lifeguards to the club next door, which is offering three more dollars an hour. And given that that labor shortage is, is unlikely to ease soon, this presumably isn't just a problem for this year. No, indeed. The United States Life Saving Association is worried about next year. They told me that we've already screwed up the pipeline over the past two years and we're seeing the effects of that now and they don't see it getting any better. And they're worried because water programs may seem like a luxury, but they're a matter of life and death. Pools and beaches keep people cool in the hot weather, teach children to swim and Also important, they keep them out of trouble in summer when violence often increases in cities. But lives are also at stake. If you don't have a lifeguard on that chair, people could drown. The Wildwood Chief of Patrol told me that every summer they save a few hundred lives and they haven't lost one while a lifeguard is on duty. Rosemary, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.